Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Um, people came. I'm so happy. I'm always happy. I always worry, and you always come through, and I'm delighted uh, to welcome you here. My name is Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we direct uh, the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university. A um, few things that we always like to mention before we get started on the night's learning is that um, this is one of... It feels like 125 things we're doing this semester. If you like what you see tonight, and I'm pretty sure you will, and you want to know more about what we're doing in the Garavena Center, we have a table in the back that has our calendar for the rest of the semester. A couple highlights would be um, we have a um, Old Testament scholar, um, Suzanne Schultz, coming the week after spring break, uh, March 18th, and she's going to be giving a talk called Reading the Bible Disruptively with an Eye Toward Gender Justice in the, um, in the Old Testament. So that's coming up, and then we're also really excited, and people are usually stunned to hear that uh, liturgical composer Bernadette Farrell is flying here from England to do a concert for us, getting back in the plane and going back. She is only coming out for the concert and then going back. That is free and open to you and 400 of your best friends. That's going to happen on March 21st. We have a flyer for that. If you would like to uh, get, be part of our mailing list, we only discreetly mail out once a month. Uh, you can sign up for that in the back. And finally, if you are... Uh, Penultimately, I should say, if you are a student and you want your one of your professors to know that you were here learning tonight, uh, we will have uh, sign-ups in the hallway following the talk. And our student workers, Andrew and Casey, will facilitate that. Finally, if you are a K-12 teacher of any stripe and would like to earn at no cost to you uh, PDUs for your presence here tonight, there's also a sign-up for that uh, in the hallway afterwards. Those will show up as if by magic uh, tomorrow in your inbox if you give us your name and your email address. All right? So thank you and welcome. I'm as delighted to introduce tonight's speaker as I am to welcome all of you to this space. Jeff Ravel is a professor of history focusing on French and European political cultures from the mid-17th to mid-19th centuries, and he's head of the history faculty at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's a great example of how to be curious about things that most of us take for granted, having explored the connections between French public theater and political culture, and a suspicious death of a fallen aristocrat who may not have actually died, and how all of those twists and turns set France on a path to more modern, enlightened uh, views of justice and liberty, as well as a new book in the work, in the works on the history of French playing cards and political regimes. Professor Ravel is recognized as an international leader in the emerging field of digital humanities and serves as president of the American Society for 18th Century Studies, among a host of other professional duties and accolades. Those were quite literally what, Dave, what writer David Brooks would call Professor Ravel's resume virtues, and there's no doubt that he's an accomplished man, and we're going to learn a lot from him tonight uh, on the topic that we asked him to address. But for most of us, Brooks notes that eulogy virtues trump resume virtues, and in that spirit, I want to say that Professor Ravel is a loyal friend, We've known each other since middle school, so approximately 114 years. <clears throat> He's roaring good company, and he is the person who introduced me 34 years ago to his new roommate, who would turn out to be my cherished husband, the person that many of you know as Dr. Mr. Eifler. I don't think that either Jeff or I ever saw tonight coming all those years ago, but I'm grateful and honored to welcome Professor Jeff Ravel to the podium to untangle the relationship between French Catholicism and the French Revolution. It gave me great pleasure to hand my roommate Mark Eifler over to Karen all those years ago. <laughs> 
I want to thank uh, both uh, Dr. Eifler and Father Gordon and the Garaventa Center for extending this wonderful invitation. And I want to thank all of you for coming out to listen tonight to some speculations and some observations about religion in the French Revolution. So last August, in remarks to reporters outside the White House, President Trump said the following about American Jews who vote for Democrats. Quote, in my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. End quote. Then, last December, the president signed an executive order based on the view that anti-Semitism should be covered by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on grounds of nationality, among other things. The implication was that Jews constitute a nationality with a primary allegiance to Israel, rather than being one of many faith-based communities in the United States. Many American Jews, who are Democrats and who consider themselves to be Americans, not citizens of Israel, found both of these episodes troubling. I am a Jew, a Democrat, and an American, and I was upset. Now, I know that it is generally not a good idea to bring up our current president and our current politics at a nonpartisan public event like this one. But my point in bringing him up tonight is not to descend into the gridlock political discourse of the moment. Rather, the controversial nature of his remarks and policies about American Jews illustrates the theme I want to discuss with you, the separation of church and state. Now, in principle, we have honored the, the idea of the separation of church and state since the founding of our country. This is such an important principle that the first sentence of the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States reads as follows. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. If we cross the Atlantic to France, we see that the 10th article of the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, the French equivalent of our Declaration of Independence, says that, quote, no one shall be troubled on account of his opinions, including his religious views, provided their manifestation does not disturb the public order established by law. So why were Trump's remarks controversial? because they challenged the theory of the separation of church and state articulated by both the Americans and the French in the course of their 18th century revolutions. If Jews constitute a separate nation rather than a religious community within the larger American nation, as Trump's December policy suggests, then might Jews eventually be excluded from citizenship in that American nation based on the exercise of their religious preference. It has become a given that separating church and state, that is, removing divine approbation as a justification for allowing a government to exercise political power, and allowing all faith communities to pursue their religious beliefs freely, is desirable, both politically and morally. For most of the 20th century, one might argue, at least in North America, this separation was seen as so desirable that it was thought to be historically inevitable dating back to the era of the Atlantic Revolutions at the end of the 18th century. But what if the arc of history does not inevitably bend toward an outcome in which theology and political ideology exist in separate spheres? In this talk, I want to explore this proposition by looking closely at the fate of Catholicism during the French Revolution. French revolutionaries of all stripes at the end of the 18th century wanted to establish a secular state devoid of religious justifications for its sovereignty. But many of the new citizens of this secular republic also wished to continue practicing their Catholic faith, a desire that brought them into conflict with the republic and caused the state to exclude them from some rights of citizenship. As we shall see, the outcome in France, at least in the short term, was not a separation of church and state, but rather a recalibration of the relationship in favor of the state. And that outcome might in turn give us a different perspective on the relations between church and state two decades into the 21st century. Okay. 
For those of you who have not recently been brushing up on your chronology of the French Revolution, here is an overview with particular attention to events related to the Catholic Church. So very quickly, I want to point out that before the revolution started in 1789, the period known as the Old Regime, uh, we can characterize the situation of the church and its influence by saying that, first of all, France was a divine right monarchy. The kings ruled uh, by the authority of the Christian deity. That French society was divided both socially and juridically into three estates, and that the clergy were the first estate, the nobility the second estate, and the commoners the third estate. And that at the same time, before the revolution, there were challenges to the idea of absolute monarchy and to Catholic theology, particularly what we might call enlightened deism. I'll also have more to say about that. In the first four years of the revolution, France experimented with a constitutional monarchy. Someone like Britain was at that point as well. During this period, Incidents that I will talk about having to do with the church include the decision of the nation to appropriate and sell church lands, taken in the first year of the revolution, and the promulgation of a civic constitution of the clergy, which required uh, members of the clergy to uh, take an oath of allegiance to the new revolution, to the new regime. The king falls in 1792, and from 92 to 99, the French experiment with the first French Republic. During this period, incidents that relate to this issue of church and state that I want to talk about include, I'm actually not going to talk about the cult of reason, but the cult of the supreme being, the process of de-Christianization, and then in the last four years, from 95 to 99, a period known as the Directory, conflicts between uh, remaining uh, aspects of the Catholic Church in France. Finally, the story that I want to tell ends in 1802 when Napoleon reestablishes relationships with, relationships with uh, Roman Catholicism and with the Pope in Rome. Now I'm going to go through each of these periods and look in greater detail at the fate of Catholicism and Catholic believers. As I've been saying, the central fact of politics in France before the revolution was that the old regime monarchs claimed to exercise power in the name of a Christian deity who authorized them to be the temporal custodians of their Catholic subjects. The kings were answerable in theory only to that god upon their death. There were no temporal checks on the exercise of earthly power, although that was true more in theory than in practice. Now, in this image, you see a representation of a ceremony called the Sacre, a ritual that was held in the cathedral in France, which is to the east of Paris, at the, start, at the outset of each new reign. In this instance, we are looking at the Sacre of the young Louis XIII in 1610, who has ascended to the throne after the assassination of his father, Henry V. There are two important issues to note. First, this legitimation of the rule of the young king, he was nine years old at the time, takes place within the cathedral, within this church space. Second, the young king, who is right here, he is kneeling before the altar of the cathedral, is surrounded by bishops, uh, one of whom pours the sacred oil, that's right here, on his head to anoint him. Crowned monarchs in attendance uh, sit outside this holy circle, and beyond them are other nobles and clerical observers. But this is a ritual that is conducted by the first estate that I was talking about, the clergy, to emphasize the king's right to rule, uh, that the king's right to rule is divine. Church and state are intimately linked in this scenario. The church's claim to legitimate the exercise of political power, and indeed its very theological underpinnings, did not go unchallenged during the 18th century Age of Enlightenment. To the schisms that had beset the church since its beginnings were now added a variety of skeptical viewpoints, from atheism to deism. Voltaire, whose bust you see here, was one of the best-known advocates of deism, a view which held that a watchmaker god had created the universe wound it up like a clock, and then stepped back for all time while the mechanism ran of its own accord. Voltaire campaigned against religious fanaticism of all stripes. His famous rallying cry, Écraser l'infâme, which translates as crush the infamous thing, did not refer exclusively to Catholic fanaticism. 
He also wrote against Jewish, Protestant, and Muslim fanatics, all of whom he thought jeopardized the progress of humanity towards peace and happiness. Here you see the church that Voltaire built on his estate at Fernay, just outside of Geneva, where he resided for the last 20 years of his life. The Latin inscription right here reads, Erected to God by Voltaire. The fact that Voltaire's name appears in letters larger than those used for God (laughs) was Voltaire's tongue-in-cheek way of chiding the supposed omnipotence of the deity. Voltaire, of course, was only one of many French Enlightenment philosophers who challenged Catholic orthodoxy before the Revolution. Many of them contributed to a great compendium of Enlightenment thought, the Encyclopedia of Denis Diderot and Jean Leron d'Alembert, which contained a number of anti-clerical articles under seemingly innocuous titles. The article Sunday, for example, offered the argument that village priests should spend Sundays taking their parishioners out in the countryside to do public works projects, such as swamp drainage or road construction, rather than saying mass and delivering sermons in the local church. Beyond the court of the kings of France, however, and outside the rarefied air of Enlightenment salons, the church actually made significant progress towards providing a better educated, better remunerated clergy to attend to the spiritual needs of the king's subjects. In a book that I wrote about an incident in the center of France at the end of the 1600s to which Dr. Eiffler referred, I discovered that a number of local parishes had no resident clergy or were staffed by ailing illiterate priests who had reputations for drunkenness or who failed to observe the vows of celibacy. Many of the church buildings were in states of disrepair so grave that villagers were afraid to enter them. Over the course of the 18th century, however, the situation changed, so much so that many Enlightenment writers contrasted the well-meaning, literate, community-oriented parish priests with the allegedly gluttonous and idle monks who did not tend to the flock. So in short then, the situation of the French church was varied and complex before the revolution, as befits the one institution in France with which the king's 27 million subjects on the eve of the revolution had regular interactions, and an institution which owned somewhere between a quarter to a third of all the land in France. Let's move on now to the first phase of the revolution, the constitutional monarchy. From the earliest days of the revolution in 1789, it was clear that those in charge wanted to end the claims of the king to rule by divine authority. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, the document I quoted on church-state relations earlier, made a reference to a supreme being in its preamble. According to this preamble, the supreme being was an entity in whose presence the new legislative body of France set forth its basic ideals, including the notion that political sovereignty derived from the nation rather than a Christian god. This label of supreme being, which we will encounter again, referred for the most part to the deist conception of divinity endorsed by Voltaire and other Enlightenment figures. This supreme being was responsible for the natural world. The rigorous logic of natural law was now the basis for political claims of power, rather than the mysterious sanction of a Catholic divinity that had been formalized in the anointment ritual at Reims Cathedral. The personnel and symbols of Catholicism continued, however, to have an important presence in formal state rituals in the early years of the Revolution. Here you see an image of the Festival of Federation, which was a massive civic ceremony staged in a newly built stadium on the outskirts of Paris in mid-1790. Similar smaller festivals were organized in most of the major French provincial centers. The event took place exactly one year after the storming of the Bastille prison on 14 July 1789, a key moment when the people of Paris rose up to resist the armed forces of the king in the capital. This festival, a year later, was intended to show the solidarity of all sectors of French society, from the king, the court, the clergy and the nobility, down to the humblest of urban laborers and rural agricultural workers. So here you see in this image a crowd estimated to be around 100,000 people assembled in civic celebration. And in the foreground, you see many different types of people, children, women, soldiers, laborers. It's meant to emphasize the unity, the supposed unity and solidarity of the French nation. 
My point here is that Catholicism still have a place at the very center of this consecration of national sovereignty one year into the revolution. The will of the nation authorized the government to exercise power according to revolutionary ideology, but in this painting of the central altar at the festival of the of Federation, in other words, uh, it's this right here, now shown in much larger perspective, um, uh, you see a uh, painting by the great revolutionary artist Jacques-Louis David, and you can see a cross on the altar uh, at which the secular hero of two revolutions, the Marquis de Lafayette, right here, stands as he prepares to take a civic oath. On the other side of the altar, this figure right here, a religious acolyte wears a revolutionary tricolor sash and holds a lance with a monarchical banner and a revolutionary pennant intertwined. He bends backwards as he strains to maintain control of the banner in the strong winds, seemingly overwhelmed by the rays of light emanating from God or perhaps the supreme being in the upper left beyond the clouds. At the right of this picture right here, is Charles-Maurice de talleyrand Perigord, the Archbishop of Autun, wearing a bishop's robes and mitre and holding a crozier. Talleyrand would go on to have a lengthy revolutionary career as a politician and diplomat. Near him are other acolytes holding various religious objects with a censer at their feet. Even as the people and symbols of Catholicism continued to be central to revolutionary political rituals, however, the new regime was rethinking its relationship to the church. In November 1789, acknowledging the need for funding to consolidate the revolution, the National Assembly voted that church property, quote, was at the disposal of the nation, end quote. The nation would now be responsible for paying the clergy and attending to the poor. Soon after, the state began selling the property and landed holdings of the Catholic Church. This poster, which dates from April 1791, announces the auctioning off of church property at an event in Auxerre, a provincial economic and administrative center in Burgundy. The holdings of various parishes in Auxerre and outlying regions are listed here in the two columns. The expropriation of land and property was justified by the idea of national sovereignty. The land of France belonged to its citizens, not the church, which was seen as a foreign body that owed allegiance to the pope in Rome. Proponents of this idea argued that the care of souls, the work of the clergy, made no contribution to the material well-being of the nation. So in this colored engraving, we see a bishop seated up here, uh, riding off on a cart, He's smoking a pipe and holding a bottle. His discarded mitre is at his side. Uh, and he's riding off on a cart with his downcast retinue after being expelled from the newly appropriated church building. And in this image, we see clerical figures who have allegedly grown fat and lazy living off of church sinecures being led to the, quote, patriotic press, or literally the patriotic degreaser is what the French means, to be squeezed down to size. The clergyman at the left being led to the press is being told, patience, sir, your turn will come. On the right, two formerly hefty figures, now slimmed down to a newly patriotic thinness, walk away, moaning that there is no more remedy for their situation. Equally devastating for the church, and with consequence, consequences that prevented the long-term political stabilization of the revolution, was the civil constitution of the clergy, a piece of revolutionary legislation passed by the National Assembly in July 1790, just two days before the celebration of the Festival of Federation that we were just looking at. The Assembly enacted this piece of legislation as further means of nationalizing the church and converting its personnel from the legal status of a separate social class that it had enjoyed before 1789 to that of state functionaries in the new regime. Since the church was no longer a property holder, the state now took over responsibility for paying its personnel and at the same time set out to rationalize and modernize church administration. The key points of the constitution, uh, civil constitution of the clergy were the following. First, parishes were to be consolidated. In a town of 6,000 or less, there would only be one parish and there were reductions in the number of parishes in larger towns. Most clerical titles were abolished now, except that of bishop and priest. 
All bishops and priests were now to be elected by locals, not appointed by Rome or by French church officials. Clerical salaries were to be paid by the nation, and bishops and priests were required to reside in their departments. They were only permitted limited absences. While it is easy to imagine that the French clergy were not anxious to abide by these terms, the National Assembly in Paris simply assumed that the Pope in Rome would order compliance with the civil constitution because Rome did not have the resources to pay the priests and the rest of the French clerical hierarchy. Yet the Pope delayed approval in summer and fall of 1790. And at the end of November, the assembly passed a motion imposing an oath of fidelity to the civil constitution of the clergy on all churchmen now receiving a salary from the state. This was the key moment when the revolution's aspirations for an easy transition from an independent Catholic church to a state-run clerical bureaucracy collapsed. Indeed, some historians of the revolution have gone so far as to assert that it was the moment when any hope for a stable transition to constitutional monarchy in France disappeared, assuring that the legacy of the revolution would be one of ideological divide and bloody civil warfare. The piece of late 18th century flatware on display in this slide shows a priest swearing to uphold the civil constitution of the clergy. The members of the National Assembly may have imagined that the many thousands of parish priests and other clerics throughout the country would happily swear allegiance to the new proposal for church-state relations. But if so, they were mistaken. Rome never ratified the civil constitution of the clergy, and as 1790 switched over to 1791, and a swift, peaceful consolidation of the ideals of 1789 seemed more and more remote, Many clerics refused to take the oath and became leaders of the provincial opposition to the revolution, now increasingly based in Paris. So how many priests refused to take the oath? This map gives an approximate geographical breakdown with the darker regions indicating a higher percentage of oath takers. And even today, two and, a two and a quarter centuries later, the regions where fewer priests, the lighter regions took the oath, have a greater number of devout Catholics in France. But historians have been unable to say for sure how many clergymen stayed faithful to Rome, because the rituals mandated for oath-taking were vague and easily undone, and the chaotic circumstances throughout France, as the country abandoned the monarchy in 1792, meant that many cures, curés, who originally took the oath later forsook it, while others who refused it fled the country. By mid-1791, Rome had come out in opposition to the civil constitution of the clergy, ordering French clerics not to swear allegiance. <laughs> Priests, monks, and others in the former first estate, a significant number of whom did favor at least some of the revolutionary principles, were now faced with a stark choice. Swear allegiance to the revolution and abandon Rome, or follow the lead of the pope and risk losing their appointments and lively livelihoods, or worse. Nor was the split limited to church personnel. Non-jurors often led their faithful parishioners into oppositional stances or even out-and-out -out warfare against the armies of the Republic. So let us now turn to the period of the First French Republic from September 1792 to December 1799. By late fall 1792, the Constitution had been suspended. The king had been taken prisoner in Paris, and preparation had begun for his trial before the National Convention that would end in his conviction and execution. I want to begin here by considering efforts at de-Christianization, and also look at the new deist cult which arose, that of the supreme being we discussed earlier. De-Christianization politics, exacerbated by the split in the clergy that the oath had fostered, took many forms including destruction of churches and other clerical buildings and the statues, altars, and other physical objects of Catholic worship, persecution of non-jurors, those who wouldn't swear, and eventually even churchmen who took the oath, marriages which were forced on reluctant monks and nuns, and in the most extreme cases at the height of the terror in 1793-94, trials and executions. Many of those who, failed, who refused to take the oath fled the country in these years. I want to mention two aspects of de-Christianization. Calendrical reform, 
which had profound cultural and spiritual implications, and the alteration of churches to conform with the new revolutionary cult of the supreme being. Many of you may be familiar with the way that the revolution decided, decided to restart the calendar, claiming that 22 September 1792, the fall equinox that year, and the day that the first French Republic was declared, was the first day of the first month of the first year of the new republic. While the ideological point was clear, a new age of human progress was born with the overthrow of the king and the constitutional monarchy. The attack on the church implied in this calendrical reform is perhaps less obvious to us today. So to explain what was at stake, let's have a look at this broadsheet, or royal almanac for the year 1705, when the sun king Louis XIV, who built Versailles, was still in power. The imagery at the top celebrates uh, Louis, who is posing in the center, surrounded by his sons and grandsons, who are there to perpetuate the dynasty. Below that staged scene, here we see images of battles and new monuments and architectural buildings uh, designed during that year. And at the very bottom, on the left and on the right, is the daily calendar for 1705. Here's a close-up of the calendar on the left-hand side at the bottom, showing the first six months of the year. Each column is a month uh, within the, that year uh, and displays the date, the name of the day, and the name of the Catholic saint who is to be celebrated on that day. Each Sunday, the day of rest and worship is printed in red, punctuating the calendar. So in this broadsheet, the very passage of time itself appears to be sanctioned by the Bourbon monarch who rules in the name of divine right. Here is what a de-Christianized or Republican calendar looks like. This calendar presents information on the months, days, and holidays of the year two, that's all right in here, um, which ran from September 22, 1793 to September 21, 1794. At the top, instead of a king, we have an allegorical figure of liberty wearing the Republican cap or Phrygian bonnet who rationally calculates the passage of time with her compass and with the source book of planetary observations. She dictates calendrical information to a rapt puto right here who writes down her thoughts on a scroll resting on a celestial globe. The revolution rationalized the calendar just as it rationalized measurements for space and volume by creating the metric system. The new calendar contained 365 days, of course, because even the revolution could not change the fact that it takes that long for the Earth to go around the sun. But the 12 months were divided equally into 30 days each, with five days left at the end of the year dedicated to civic festivals. And once every four years in the leap year, there was an extra day which was known as the Festival of Revolution. Each of these 12 30-day months was now divided into three 10-day weeks, with only one day of rest at the end, which was called the décadie. The revolutionaries taught that the extra workdays generated more productivity on farms and in urban workshops. But discontented farmers and laborers resented the loss of around 20 Sunday rest days per year in the new scheme. We can dig deeper into the revolutionary calendar by examining a deck of revolutionary playing cards designed in the Champagne district of France in 1793. So by then, playing cards could no longer display kings, queens, or jacks, which were symbols of the discredited monarchical regime. Here you see cards which formerly had been designated as queens, now labeled second cards. That's what the label is at the top. And in this rationalized scheme, kings became first cards and jacks became third cards. Our second cards here, featuring female allegories of the four seasons instead of queens, list the new names of the 12 months for attentive card players. For example, this first card on the left, this is spring, uh, lists on her shield right here the names of the new months of spring. Germinal, Florial, and Prairial, which are intended to refer to spring-like natural phenomena, such as germination and the budding of flowers, and natural spaces uh, such as prairies. March, April, and May have disappeared. 
Here we have the two of diamonds from this deck, except that the word two, de in French, has been replaced by the word duodi, which refers to the name of the second day of the new 10-day week. Here we have all 12 of the new months of the calendar um, listed in order, starting with at the top, Vendémiaire, which is derived from the word Vendange, which means harvest in French. And this is the month that occurs in what were formerly September and October. In the sixes, or the sextidis, the name for the sixth day of the 10-day week, we have the Six of Clubs, which provides the theme for each of the three monthly décadis, the rest days in the month, which everyone was supposed to take off to participate in civic rituals. And I want to call your attention particularly to this phrase at the top, which says, the French people recognize the existence of the supreme being and the immortality of the soul. We're going to come back to that phrase in a second. Um, below that we read the uh, purposes or the themes of each of the rest days at the end of the 10-day week. So, for example, on 20 Prefial, the theme is the supreme being and nature. And on the next rest day, uh, it's the human species, and so on and so forth. Now, on the right, on the Sextidi of Spades, we have a list of the values associated with the five days at the end of the calendar year. That's this right here. Or what were called the sans-culottide, named after the popular Parisian working class, the sans-culotte. These values, these five values right here, are uh, virtue, genius, work, opinion, and compensation. So this brief exposition of the revolutionary calendar exposes one of the more subtle ways that dechristianization worked. By renaming days and cutting back the number of Sabbath rest days, the revolutionaries sought to break the clerical hold on the culture of the people and encourage citizens of the new republic to work harder on its behalf. There was also an architectural aspect to the policy of dechristianization. Here you see a panoramic view of the great cathedral of Our Lady of the Assumption in Clermont-Ferrand, which is a major provincial center in the Massif Central region south of the Loire Valley. The cathedral is not in need of cleaning. It was built from black volcanic stone that was mined nearby. And it was on this site in 1095, almost uh, 800 years before the revolution, that Pope Urban II preached the first crusade. Now, if we look a little more closely, we can see that traces of revolutionary dechristianization remain on the facade of the building even today. This is the church's north portal, as it appears in the 21st century, after having been stripped of its religious sculpture program during the revolution. The sign above the only remaining statue, an image of the Virgin Mary and Christ child, delivers a decidedly non-Catholic message that was inscribed at the height of the terror in 1793-94. And this is the same message that we saw on the playing card. The French people recognized the supreme being and the immortality of the soul. Um, it's also the phrase that was on the ruined church that I had up on the screen as you were coming into the room tonight. This is a reference to the cult of the supreme being authorized by Maximilien Robespierre, the de facto head of state at the time of the terror, who wished to propagate the cult of the supreme being as an antidote to more atheistic doctrines in circulation that Robespierre believed undercut the revolutionary message. This is a visual representation of the cult of the supreme being, also most likely from the 1793-94 period. So on the left, we see the new cult's patron saint, Voltaire, <laughs> hovering over a statue of Brutus, the Republican hero of Roman antiquity, whom Voltaire had extolled in one of his more popular 18th century tragedies. On the right, over here, is a shrine to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, with whom Voltaire had quarreled during their lifetimes. The logic of the revolutionary cult, however, paired them together as prophets of the supreme being, inspiring as the text at the top of the engraving notes, the sovereign people of the French Republic. Robespierre, however, fell from power in July 1794, and with his removal, the enthusiasm for the cult of the supreme being waned. 
Robespierre's government, which we might label a dictatorship by committee, was replaced with a new revolutionary experiment in government, governance called the Directory. This lasted from 1795 to 1799. The Directory might be, best be understood as France's first experiment in parliamentary democracy. Its quick end was hastened in part by its failure to resolve the problems posed by the civil constitution of the clergy way back in 1790-91. After the terror ended in 1794, exiled clerics and nobility slowly began to return to France. Priests who had remained in France, even during the most dangerous periods of repression against Catholicism, now began to celebrate Mass openly again. In 1795, as part of an effort to put revolutionary antagonisms behind it, the Directory declared that it would not pay the salaries of Catholic clerics, but it would also not interfere with Catholic worship or the worship excuse me, of any other monotheistic religion. This moment in February of 1795 was the closest the revolution came to proclaiming the separation of church and state in France. But the calm was short-lived. As yearly elections to the national parliament after 1794 seesawed back and forth between the rival Republican and Royalist factions that had emerged after the terror and the fall of Robespierre, the open practice of Catholicism became subject to repression again. Priests were occasionally forced to take oaths of civic submission, and the ringing of church bells could draw criminal penalties or even deportation. Signs to the supreme being and the immortality of the soul were blasted off church facades, and the old sculptures of the apostles and the prophets returned. Devout Catholics forgave priests who had taken the oath, inviting them back to shepherd their communities. And religious communities which had resisted the civil constitution of the clergy, clandestinely continuing the old forms of worship, and sometimes taking arms to resist the revolutionary armies, now had their own new martyrs around whom community solidarity formed again. In short, faith and tradition proved much harder to exterminate than other aspects of the old regime that the revolutionaries of 1789 had also attacked. When Napoleon assumed power in a coup d'etat in November 1799, and you see him here at the center of the uh, legislators in this image, uh, he inherited the problems of religious discord, along with all the other unfinished business of the revolutionary decades. He brought a much more pragmatic approach to the problem than had the waves of revolutionary legislators and theorists before him, who had grappled unsuccessfully with the conflicts between Roman Catholic worship and citizenship in the New Republic. The people must have a religion, Napoleon wrote, and this religion must be in the control of the government, end quote. One of his generals noting that the war against the Catholic faithful in the west of France still tied down tens of thousands of French soldiers at the end of the decade, ironically advised Napoleon that, quote, our religious revolution is a failure. People have become Roman Catholic again. Maybe we are at the point where we need the Pope to bring the priests to the support of the revolution. Accordingly, Napoleon opened negotiations with the Vatican shortly after coming to power. He began with three principles, these negotiations. One, the restoration of the French church with a new episcopate. Two, the French state would go back to, play, to paying clerical salaries. And three, the churchmen would renounce all claim to their former properties. The ultimate agreement, signed in 1802 and known as the Concordat, was vague on many of the details regarding these three points. But rather than the overly precise and legalistic civil constitution of the clergy, which had left no room for compromise at the parish level or in Rome, the new arrangement managed to hold and removed a source of instability to the new Napoleonic regime. We can see its success two years later in the ceremony for the coronation of Napoleon as emperor of the French that took place in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. So let me first remind you again of the anointment of Louis XIII of France in France Cathedral in 1610, in which the churchmen confer legitimacy on the Bourbon monarchy. Then contrast that moment with Napoleon's coronation in 1804. Rather than being separate by the end of the church, the roles of church and state are now reversed. In 1804, the pope, who is right here, 
sits silently off to the side as a witness to Napoleon, who, having crowned himself, right here, proceeds to bestow an imperial crown on his wife, Josephine. The church is present, and in fact the ceremony takes place in the most important Catholic space in France, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. But it is Napoleon, his body personifying the imperial state, that now has the upper hand. So, to summarize this history, during the old regime, church and state were inseparable. Kings claimed to exercise political authority that derived directly from a Christian god. In the early constitutional monarchy phase of the revolution through 1792, Catholic personnel and sacred objects continued to be a part of political pageantry. But the state also moved to confiscate church land and property, to restructure church administration, and to force the clergy to swear an oath of allegiance to Paris rather than Rome. Many priests and other church personnel refused, leading to a split between constitutional clergymen and clandestine resistors. After the demise of the king in late 1792, the National Assembly embarked on a policy of dechristianization and tried to foster a new religion uh, based on the deistic concept of a supreme being. These policies faded with the fall of Robespierre in summer 1794 and the end of the most politically radical phase of the revolution. Under the directory from 1795 to 1799, the revolution failed to either eradicate Catholicism definitively or agree upon a version of a national faith that would be acceptable to all. When Napoleon came to power at the end of 1799, he realized that he needed a quick, pragmatic solution to the problem of church-state relations. The result was the Concordat of 1802, a vaguely defined agreement between France and Rome that succeeded in removing one source of opposition to the new imperial state that Napoleon proclaimed in Notre Dame uh, Cathedral in Paris in 1804. So by way of conclusion, to come back to the question I posed at the outset of the lecture, what does history teach us about the inevitability of the separation of church and state? In principle, we have assumed that states should be secular and that they should guarantee religious freedom for all faiths. But two and a half centuries after the era of Atlantic revolutions, when this concept first emerged, the historical record suggests that the separation of church and state is not a preordained outcome. Our closer look at the French Revolution of the late 18th century reveals that separation of church and state was never official policy and never a possible outcome. Examples from around the globe today reinforce this point. In India, a Hindu nationalist party, led by Narendra Modi, follows a virulently anti-Muslim policy. In Burma, Buddhist nationalists have led a severe repression, labeled by some a genocide, against Rohingya Muslims. In Israel, the government of Benjamin Netanyahu veers closer and closer to a theocracy, powered by the religious doctrines of Orthodox Jews. And in Iran, a regime that calls itself an Islamic Republic, and a regime that recalls itself an Islamic Republic relies on Shiite theology to justify its hold on power. There is reason to believe, therefore, that we should not expect the separation of church and state to be an inevitable state of human affairs. This conclusion, which suggests that we need a new way of imagining church-state relations in the 21st century that will not lead to new rounds of violence and loss of life. Perhaps the time is right for a new Voltairean campaign, global in scope, to crush fanaticism in all its religious and political manifestations. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ravel's uh, ready to take a couple of questions if you would like to pose them. And I thank you for quite a, a tour de force, to use my Duolingo French. That was a real tour de force. We, we've been rehearsing French over dinner. Yeah. yeah. Um, I noticed that at the beginning you had one of the paintings of David, and the end was a painting of David. Did the artists have quite a 
uh, role in, in this turbulent time that uh, would help us understand it? Or? David is an amazing figure, both artistically and aesthetically, and also politically. He became very involved. So in the period of the terror in 93 and 94, I said that France was a dictatorship by committee. What I meant by that is that there were two committees appointed uh, from members of the National Assembly, the Committee of Public Safety and the Committee of General Security, who essentially ran the country, ran the war effort, tried to provision the people and the soldiers. David was a member of one of those committees. He also designed many of the pageants and festivals in the first five years or so of the revolution. As the revolution progressed, like many others who kept their head on their shoulders, his political views evolved. And by the time Napoleon came to power, he became a pageant maker and an image maker for Napoleon. I actually want to show you one more image by David. Just let me go forward here a little bit. Yeah, this is the one I want right here. So this is an image that was made in 1793. It represents Jean-Paul Marat, who was a propagandist and one of the more extreme revolutionaries at the height of the terror. He authored, he was the author of a daily news sheet that was called L'Ami du Peuple, the friend of the people. And in it, he espoused very radical opinions. And, and he also, towards the end of his life, had a skin disease and had to remain in a bathtub. That's what's being depicted here. Um, he was assassinated by a political opponent, a woman named Charlotte Corday, uh, who snuck in, who sort of falsified who she was, snuck into the room where his bath was, pulled out a knife, and uh, stabbed him. You can sort of see the knife wound right here. But the reason I bring up this painting, which I think is one of... David's corpus is extraordinary, but this is one of the most striking examples, is this is the perfect conflation of revolutionary ideology and religious imagery, because obviously this is modeled on the Pieta and Christ coming down off the cross. And to merge those two together, I think, tells us a lot about the uh, um, interplay between religion and political ideology, and it's just a brilliant image. With the uh, role of religion in France throughout the time, what role did they play through the revolution? Did the revolutionaries counter not just against the monarchy, but also the, the church and its figures directly, physically, or did they avoid them? Were they complacent, much mm -hmm. like uh, the uh, Vichy were in World War II? Or where did the church lie amongst that? That oh, so what was the church's policy towards the revolution? Is what well, and the revolution's policy towards the church, uh -huh. and the people itself, when they revolted. Well, as I was trying to suggest, there is a sort of evolution of the relationship between the two over the decade of the revolution, if you say that the revolution went from 1789 to 1799. And at the beginning, there is this kind of uneasy coexistence. The regime borrows on the symbolism, the ritual, the tradition, the deep way in which Catholicism is implanted in the consciousness and the mentalities of the people. Um, after the fall of the king in 1792, and with a determination to regenerate France, to deracinate Catholicism, to create new citizens for a new republic, there is greater hostility between the two parties. And there is finally, at the end of the trajectory that I described to you, an uneasy accord between Rome and Paris, which really becomes possible primarily because of the pragmatism of Napoleon, who is trying to calm down all of the irresolv irresolvable tensions of the revolution, including um, the resistance, overt or passive, of Catholic believers to the new regime. The founders of the United States looked to France often for models and inspiration. Did what happened between the church and state in France affect any policy in the United States? Any thinking, the long-lasting uh, conditions? Yeah, so this is a complicated question because I think in the uh, British colonies and then in the founding of the New Republic, the Protestant church, or the Anglican church actually, but then there are many other Protestant denominations within the U.S. already before 1776, play a different role 
less legitimating role than Roman Catholicism does in France. And so that's why the uh, First Amendment to the Constitution prohibits the establishment of any state religion and also guarantees the freedom of many religions. There was a kind of wisdom to that that had been learned from observing religious warfare both in England over the early modern period but also in Europe as well. Um, France is a different case. The Catholic Church had not only been the uh, political justification for the exercise of power by the divine right monarchs, but had also teamed with the state to really eliminate most other religions. For example, 1685 is the date of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, which is the moment at which Protestants are told, you either convert to Catholicism or you must leave the Kingdom of France. So there was not this tradition in the century leading up to the revolution of uh, diversity of religion that inspired that first amendment to the Constitution in the U.S. Yep. Um, I think about the uh, I guess adjudication a lot of the 20th century where the Supreme Court has said you know religious organizations are necessary cooperators for, for public aims like school busing and hospital funding and such so how, how would you characterize the cooperative relationship versus establishment and like, where are those boundaries? During the period of the French Revolution? No, today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you run that by me one more time? Well, they, you know, there's a, a great deal of cooperation. Say, for example, Catholic hospitals. And you're talking about the U.S. now? Yeah, the or U.S. Okay. So Catholic hospitals, they serve such a valuable public service. They run the hospitals really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, but then but then they also begin to dictate certain public policies right. along the way. Um, uh, women's health care, reproductive services, and even to the extent of um, insurance policies and whether or not birth control is funded. Mm -hmm. such. So, so how do we, in the United States, preserving... Um, pluralistic values, anti-establishment values, how, how, how do you see us um, navigating that, that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, you probably have an answer yourself to that question. My, no. own sense of it, <laughs> my own sense of it is that this is ultimately, in the early 21st century, a political question. And both religious advocates and secular advocates in an ideal world would be able to present their positions rationally and come to some sort of conclusion. Um, and maybe we'll get to that point someday. I mean, we see, like, from the past, we see these extremes in one way and the other way. Mm -hmm. And somehow, in this country, we've been able to manage this, this cooperative tension and manage it well for 200 years. Hmm. You know, I don't know enough about U.S. history. I imagine, and I know there's some U.S. historians in the crowd, I am not sure historians would agree that we have always managed that tension so well. <laughs> Professor Eifler, do you want to say something about that? It'd be nice if it had been. Yes. Uh, We're still here. That's, that's longer than the French Revolution. I think Professor Horton has a question, and that's going to do it for the, for the public questions. I know uh, Professor Apple's super generous with this time, if you'd like to engage with him after this final question, hope it's a good one, Dr. Horton. Whoa, that's <laughs> fresh as all, Garrett. Oh, wow. Well, no, I mean, I think maybe it's an obvious statement. I mean, maybe the, the you know, it's so difficult to have a true separation of powers, you know, state and religion, because politicians are smart and they recognize the power of religion. I mean, they are instrumentalizing, using it for sometimes as we know, very um, unreligious, perhaps even, but, you know, for their own personal, uh, you know, power, power um, structures, and um, it, it would be hard not to, because, you know, we all know the power it has, the emotions it can create, and and the loyalty it can cause. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, maybe that is perhaps one of the main reasons why we might never have, really, truly, mm -hmm. separation of power. 
Yeah, Aaron, your comment suggests that maybe we live in this gray area where there is a tension between the ideal of where we want to get, but where we never quite get to, and the reality of exercising power and making decisions either in the public interest or in not. That's a good point. I mean, that's probably part of the conclusion I was trying to get to <laughs> and trying to think carefully about whether that separation is inevitable or not. I'll just remind us, well, in the first 20 seconds. First and foremost, I, I thank my venerable uh, friend Jeff. And for those of us who call UP home or work, I'll just remind you that uh, the Congregation of Holy Cross, which, uh, which administers the University of Portland, was born out of the wreckage of what we've heard described tonight. And that that contributes a lot to the to the way that Holy Cross is in the world. And, and we're part, this is kind of part of our family history. So I'm really thrilled to see a lot of UP students and faculty and staff members here. Um, we'll, we'll thank Jeff one more time. And then again, if you would like to engage him in private conversation uh, or have some food, we don't like to have leftover food, um, please do that. And thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you, Dr. That was what you were looking for? Exactly. Okay. And then some. Good.